A big trash fire in Doral and a garbage crunch in Miami-Dade County. Student walkouts across South Florida and confronting a dictator in Nicaragua. This is the South Florida Roundup. I'm your host, Tim Padgett. In the next hour, we look at the heated debate over waste incinerators and a coming waste management crisis in Miami. We'll also look at the student protests at colleges and universities here against Governor DeSantis' proposal to block diversity and race study programs. And finally, after Nicaraguan dictator Daniel Ortega released hundreds of political prisoners, many of whom are now in Miami, we'll ask what the U.S. can do at this point to bring down his brutal regime. All that coming up right after the news. I'm Tim Padgett, and welcome to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Bienvenidos, bienveni, bienvindo. We're going to start the show today with some trash talk. No, not the kind on the basketball court. I'm talking about the fire that started at the Covanta Waste Incinerator plant in Doral two weeks ago and has now been contained. The blaze in its smoke did more than create air quality fears in West Miami-Dade County this month. It has rekindled the heated debate in Doral about the county's plans to build a new, more modern waste energy plant next door to the old Covanta facility. And it reminds us, or should remind us, all over Miami-Dade that the county has a serious garbage issue. Specifically, we may be running out of places to put our garbage. Have you been affected by the Doral fire? Do you have any ideas for solving Miami-Dade's garbage crunch? Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. You can also tweet us at WLRN. Joining me to talk about all this is Jimmy Morales. He's Miami-Dade County's chief operations officer and a former Doral city attorney. We're also joined by the vice mayor of Doral, Rafael Pinero, and by Nestor Perez, an attorney here in Miami-Dade for the environmental nonprofit Earth Justice. Thanks to all of you for being on the South Florida Roundup. Mr. Morales, let me start with you. Can you update us on the status of the fire that started on February 12th at the Covanta Waste Energy Plant in Doral? Our understanding is that Miami-Dade firefighters have it under control now. Yeah, good afternoon, Tim. I think that is correct. Uh, there is no sort of active fire, open fire, but there is still a lot of uh, trash in the in the location. So there are, you know, smolderings here and there, which still releases a little bit of smoke, but no, but still at low, very low smoke levels. Really, you've got to continuing work probably for another couple of weeks where they'll be removing uh, portions of the building to open up greater access to um, the trash in there so that they can then really you know, put out whatever smoldering areas and then remove the trash, remove, remove the fuel. And that's going to be about a two, two and a half week operation. And but, is, um, is it a but, challenge for the county to find places to put that trash they're now having to extricate? Well, you know, you, you raise uh, in your opening a great question. I mean, uh, that it's a facility that handles about a million tons of, of solid waste a year uh, uh, at, at the waste energy facility that now, certainly in the interim, uh, we are locating elsewhere, which means we're taking it either to our landfills, mm-hmm. private landfills in the area, or potentially even to uh, longer distances, including as far as central Florida, where they have some significant landfills. So right. in the short term, uh, we're landfilling it. 
in the long term, we've got to figure out sort of a sustainable solution. And another big thing that's on people's minds, not just in Doral, but around the county, of course, because of this is, uh, are we experiencing any delays in trash collection still as a result of this? I don't think anything material. I mean, uh, you know, part of the issue is that because the trucks that were before going to the facility are now going to landfills and there's more traffic there, there might be a truck that goes there, has to wait a little longer to drop off and then come back. There could be a little bit of a delay, but so far we've done a pretty good job. I haven't seen any major issues uh, with delays. Mr. Morales, tell us about the importance of this incinerator facility, which converts trash to electricity, essentially. It, as you mentioned, it, it, it processes about half the garbage Miami-Dade County collects. Is that right? About 800,000 tons each year, or as you said, maybe as much as a million? Yeah, um, it, about close to 50% of all the solid waste that goes through our stream, um, so about a million tons, uh, is processed there. So it, it is, uh, it takes up that and, uh, you know, disposes it, diverts it away from landfills. Keep in mind that we're pro- the county only uh, government itself, our solid waste department, only disposes of about 40% of all the solid waste created in Dade County. A lot, some of it goes through private entities, cities who have their own departments. So um, that million is half of what we do. Uh, but in fact, we're only 40% of the overall number. So the, the solid weight issue is, is even a bigger one than just what's handled directly by Miami-Dade County. But it is a significant uh, facility in that, um, you know, we've probably got about 10 years of life left to our three landfills right. uh, uh, based on that, on its existence, obviously a much lower number uh, without it. So. Right. Bottom line, though, is this facility is quite important to the county and it's in its garbage disposal. Uh, uh, correct. Right. But these days, many, if not most residents of Doral, which is one of the fastest growing populations in South Florida, object to having a waste incinerator plant in their midst. They say it's ugly and smelly, a quality of life problem. And so they also object to Miami-Dade County's plans to replace the current facility with a new one at roughly the same site. Uh, Rafael Pineda, vice mayor of Doral, let me turn to you. Um, Is that an accurate assessment of how folks in your city feel? Uh, Do we have vice mayor Pineda? We... Yes. Hi. Good afternoon. I'm sorry. I'm <laughs> no, no problem. No problem. Yes. Welcome, welcome to yes, South Florida Roundup. I know uh, that's that's pretty accurate. Uh, I mean, uh, well, first of all, let me say this. We have to recognize the brave uh, men and women from the Miami Day Fire Rescue Department. They have done an incredible job uh, 24 hours nonstop since this started back on, on October, uh, on February 12th. So, uh what you just mentioned is pretty accurate. I mean, our residents have been, uh, as you guys might recall, uh, uh, fighting this uh, for quite some time. I mean, last year, uh, when the decision to extend uh, the, the agreement for the plant uh, happened, obviously the residents actually were a little bit disappointed about the county commission uh, back then. Now we have, I do believe we have a, uh, an opportunity with the new county commission uh, and uh, also Mayor Levin Cava as well. Right. Uh, since we have to move forward in regards to, uh, you know, Doral is not the same place that was 20 years ago. Uh, it's We have about 80,000 residents right now. 
we have to actually work together this time with the county uh, to make sure that the, the facility is actually relocated uh, out of the city. And that is something that I'm, I'm working on, not only sending the letters to the county commissioners, but at the same time, I know our mayor, Christy Fraga, is very involved mm -hmm. right now in the conversations. So hopefully this is something that together right. we can make it happen for the quality of life of the residents. And you mentioned the new county commission. We should point out that one of the new members of the county commission is the former mayor of Doral, Juan Carlos Bermudez, who himself uh, opposes uh, the new incinerator plant being uh, built on that site. Is that correct? Correct. Right. That, that, that is correct. But Vice Mayor Pineda, let me ask you also, how do you respond to the argument that Doral residents knew the Covanta facility was there when they moved into that area, and now they're complaining about it? Now they want Miami-Dade taxpayers to possibly pony up to locate and purchase another site in the county for a new plant? Well, here, here's the thing. I mean, I, I understand your point, uh, but right now it's a, it's a different situation. No one was expecting... Uh, uh, for what happened uh, back on February 12th. Right now, we're at the point that is like we don't have it right now. Mm -hmm. So because it's not operating. So the fact that I understand that a lot of people uh, uh, might be saying that when they purchased their property, they were told that the facility was going to be out of there in the next two or three years, whatever whatever the, the real estate agency told the the person, the resident back then mm -hmm. uh, is different of the reality that we're facing. However, again, no one was expecting to this to happen. And and I think that there is an opportunity now for the new county commissioners uh, as well to make the decision to realize that this is not, I mean, it's not because of the route. This is something that should not be near to any residential community. I mean, I, mm -hmm. uh, I'm, I'm bare, I mean, I understand the situation that the county is facing right now, which they have our support as well to find a solution. But again, our racing have, have placed uh, a lot of complaints throughout the years. No, it's not something that started last year, two years ago. Mm -hmm. I'm the former chief of staff of the city. And when I was, when I started back in 2014 as the chief of staff, uh, we had the same issues and the same complaints. So, um, I think it, we have to take it as an opportunity, looking into the future, looking into the, the quality of life of our residents. But again, it's not because we're the route. We have to think uh, in general as a community what is best uh, for everybody, not only for one municipality or the other one, but to mm -hmm. think about the quality of life that our families deserve. I'm Tim Padgett. You're listening to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. And... We're talking about the waste incinerator fire in Doral and Miami-Dade County's big waste management challenges. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. You can also tweet us at WLRN. We have a call from, I believe it is Remy in Perrine. Yeah, hello. Good afternoon. A actually, it's two things. First of all, it seems like a little bit of not in my backyard, but... That, that plant was there way before the city was incorporated. And the, and the second part, which is totally aside, which just came to me, if you want less trash, there has to be less packaging to begin with. The real solution is, is uh, starting pro a prohibition of a bunch of 
plastic packaging in Miami-Dade County, which which the county commissioner seems they don't have. They don't have the um, what's what's the word like like the stomach to actually mm-hmm. put this across. Right, Remy. Thanks a lot, Nestor Perez. Let me bring you in here then. I know environmental organizations like Earth Justice are not fans of the kind of waste incinerator plant that caught fire this month in Doral. Why? Thank you, Tim. Yeah, and the fact uh, trash burning is a big business. Uh, and unlike uh, what the general image of, uh, of energy is, it actually is a big industry that depends on a constant flow of resources waste resources into that system. And uh, the main issue that we identify is that it diverts away the attention from the real solutions like Remy, the caller just identified, uh, Mm -hmm. including uh, waste prevention, uh, recycling, and composting, which is, they're called an umbrella term, zero waste, which is what Florida Rising, our client, is asking the county to do, to do the right thing this time around. Right. But but that brings us to a larger question we're having to ask in Miami-Dade right now. If if not options like waste energy plants, then what? The the county, as, as, as Mr. Morales pointed out earlier, is running out of landfill space to put the millions of tons of garbage it collects every year. So, Nestor, let, let me ask you first, what are the alternatives? Right. So the alternative, uh, our client uh, has the position that it definitely cannot include a new sacrifice zone to place this somewhere else. Uh, no community deserves this in their backyard, and it does not belong out in the Everglades either, where our water and our precious resources are at. So the real solutions uh, are already something that the county has identified in several studies that they've commissioned, including um, studies that say that over 50% of our uh, stream is recyclable, and we have a system uh, under the materials recycling uh, facilities, uh, one of which is currently out in Broward, which the county already uses to send some of the recycling and to properly recycle. That study identified that the county has opportunities to do public-private partnerships to build new recycling facilities, mm-hmm. new composting facilities, uh, including for our, our our yard and trimmings waste, which is currently also uh, partly being burned in this incinerator. And it's easily... Uh, process in mulch or in compost and uh, the market studies that the county commission mm-hmm. uh, has uh, shown that it's it's actually cheaper uh, to to do that than to incinerate it. And that's why I was uh, harping on that point. The trash burning is big business and it takes away from the real zero waste solutions, mm-hmm. which do not include incineration and do not include landfilling. Jimmy Morales, Miami-Dade's Chief Operations Officer, let me put the same question to you. The North Dade landfill is almost full. The South Dade landfill is expected to be full by 2036. What solutions is the county looking at now to handle the squeeze? Look, let me say that uh, you know Mayor Dede Cava uh, is uh, certainly philosophically in line uh, with uh, where both the Vice Mayor and, and Nestor are. I mean, um, we have declared in the last few months in fact, committed to a zero waste strategy, uh, setting a, ter- a goal of at some point trying to divert all of our uh, solid waste away from landfills and eventually even a waste energy facility. Uh, the challenge with that uh, is uh, twofold. One is it requires tremendous uh, co- uh, uh, cooperation from the community. We have one of the lowest recycling rates right. in the 
I think in Florida at 19%. Yep. So that's a challenge. Um, and, and in fact, one of the things the mayor has been saying in the last couple of weeks in our press conferences is <clears throat> maybe this can be actually the clarion call to the community to say um, solid waste is a problem. There's a, we're generating more and more in a community of now 3.8 million people. And the long-term solution can't be, you're right, landfills and these facilities. But in the short term, what are we? what is the public doing about it? Are you going to yeah. recycle? Are you going to not buy plastics and whatnot? Are you going to uh, compost? So we, we are fully committed to that. And in fact, we're going to be putting a lot of resources. We formed an internal working group on it. But we also know that in places like California, for example, that are among the most progressive and proactive in this, you know, they've been 20 years into a zero waste program and they're not there yet. So right. uh, the question in the in the short to middle term is, as we're working toward that, what do we do? And, and you know, yeah. and there's a lot of debate that landfilling is worse than waste energy. It's a very complicated issue, but there's no question that the mayor is committed to that as quickly as, as it's achievable. Mm -hmm. uh, but trying to figure out in the short term. How do we get rid of the waste that our community seems to create and not recycle? No, I'm, I'm so glad you brought up the recycling point because a lot of experts say that's one of the big reasons Miami-Dade is experiencing this garbage crunch. As you point out, we, we, we recycle less than a fifth of our garbage compared to Palm Beach County, which recycles almost half its trash. Um, Nestor Perez, real quickly from, from Earth Justice, what are environmental nonprofits like yours doing to make bad recyclers like Miami-Dade's better recyclers? Thank you, Tim. So yeah, that uh, we we see uh, a twofold issue here. So one, uh, very good uh, coming from from the county and and and, and Jimmy Morales uh, outlining the steps that the mayor has taken to to outline new zero waste uh, management policies for the county uh, for the coming years. Uh, but on the other hand, as to the current recycling that is being done. It is something that uh, the county commission studies uh, have outlined steps for the county to properly do outreach, education, and enforcement uh, mm -hmm. to to take those steps to take the residents to the new level of recycling that is needed. Right. Uh, that's something that the county needs to do, and it cannot be placed on the consumer, on the on the end resident, uh, to know. Uh, magically how they're supposed to recycling if there is no awareness, if there is no outreach, if there is no education or enforcement. Right. right. Uh, Rafael Pineda, Vice Mayor of Doral, let me just end with you here. Um, coming back sure. to the waste incinerator fire in your city, are officials and residents confident now that the environmental effects, in particular the smoke and air quality problems, have dissipated enough that folks can go about their normal outdoor activities safely now? Yes, that is correct. I mean, the latest report uh, that we actually uh, share with the <coughs> residents state that residents in the area can continue to enjoy outdoor activities, but should be mindful that conditions may vary throughout the day. Uh, residents should consider heating indoors if they experience smoky mm. condi conditions and continue limiting their exposure to the immediate area of the plant. Okay. And the reason why we're saying this is because obviously there's still uh, work at the facility that, that is being done by the Miami <coughs> uh, Rescue Department. And the more work that they do sometimes, and depending on the wind conditions, okay. might create some uh, smoke in the area. Okay, thank you for that. Rafael Pineda is the vice mayor of Doral. Nestor Perez is an attorney for Earth Justice. Jimmy Morales is Miami-Dade County's chief operations officer. Gentlemen, thank you again for joining us. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Tim. Thank you. Still to come, college students in South Florida stage walkouts to protest Governor DeSantis' plans to block race and diversity programs. 
I'm Tim Padgett. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Last month, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis proposed a bill blocking state colleges and universities from offering programs that promote what's called DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, or courses that teach CRT, meaning critical race theory. DeSantis says those are not genuine academic pursuits, but rather liberal or, quote, woke political agendas. DeSantis's critics call that a lie and say he's just throwing red meat to the conservative white voters he needs if he wants to win the 2024 Republican presidential nomination. Either way, a lot of Florida college students are now pushing back at DeSantis's plan. That's especially true here in South Florida, where diversity is widely regarded as one of our chief assets chief assets. At schools including the University of Miami, Florida Atlantic University, and Florida International University, students this week staged walkouts in protest. People don't want to be in the state of Florida right now with what's happening, but we can't shy away from what's happening. We have to fight. That was Kaylee LaChapelle, the president of FIU's Pride, excuse me, Pride Student Union, and they are trans. Did you participate in the walkouts? What do you think about the protests? Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. You can tweet us also at WLRN. Joining me here in the studio is WLRN education reporter Kate Payne and Diego Diaz. He's a student journalist and assistant news director at Florida International University who covered the student walkouts for FIU's campus newspaper, Panther Now. Thank Welcome you to both of you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So, Kate, let me start with you. Uh, you were covering the walkouts this week uh, at FIU in particular um, as part of the statewide movement that's uh, now called Student for Freedom Florida. Is that correct? Stand for Freedom. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Sorry. Stand, yeah. Stand for Freedom Florida. Um, what was the general message of the students that, that, that you heard? What, what did they tell you? Yeah, so what I heard from them was that they were protesting a slate of policies, so not just the efforts to defund and target diversity, equity, inclusion initiatives, uh, but also restrictions on how educators can address topics like race, identity, and history in the classroom, and also the requests for health data on transgender students on campus. And students told me that they see this slate of efforts as political interference on academic integrity and, and independence, um, and that they're worried that it can jeopardize um, really the independence of, of these public universities. And so they're, they're seeing DeSantis' plan as being the same sort of political agenda that he accuses them of, of supporting with DEI and CRT and things of that nature. In a sense. Yeah. Diego, what did you see when you were out there and what did you hear? Uh, pretty much the same. Something else I'd also like to add, another major point that is uh, contended by both students and faculty has been the proposed as well as the already uh, in transition to being implemented changes to tenure. Specifically, it changes to five-year uh, post-tenure review. And under the most recent proposals, which were announced, as you said, back in January, uh, DeSantis, or the uh, university presidents and board of trustees would be able to call tenureship reviews at will. So there is also a huge central focus on academic freedom beyond just the uh, DEI and CRT. Did both of you get the sense that the administrations at these universities backed the student walkout and protests, Kate? Um, I I would not get that sense. Um, they they were taking you know sort of a, a neutral line. Neutral? I would okay. say mm -hmm. um, there were 
you know, certainly a police presence there on campus to ensure the safety of everybody as, as they express their freedom of speech. Um, and I know that there were conversations, you know, between the protest organizers and the university to ensure that and their ability to express themselves. Um, but the FIU's Board of Trustees Chair, Dean Colson, did put out a statement um, related to, to this and, you know, acknowledged this is a really difficult time in higher ed. Um, he said that FIU is not in the business of indoctrinating students, um, but said that there's a, a compromise to be made between the concerns of state officials and uh, safeguarding academic independence and, and academic freedom on campus. And Diego, I mean, we did see professors out there with, with the students as well. But do you, you, you would agree with Kate that as far as the university institutions themselves, they were sort of staying on the sidelines? Yes, administration-wise. They definitely be on the sidelines of most of these uh, legislation and proposals. This has kind of been a continuing theme that's also being seen in any of the, uh, uh, oh my God, uh, <laughs> uh, the uh, teacher association. So when you're talking mm -hmm. about the teacher uh, faculty government, there, whenever Jessel, the university president or administrators have gone on, it has been this very conciliatory tone and in some cases can almost come off as belittling seeing as things aren't changing so Colson actually discussing it as a hard time is a notable change in their rhetoric actually acknowledging the fact that there is a fear that faculty mm -hmm. and students are feeling oh you see that as a, as a change then it's something mm -hmm. yeah <laughs> Kate last month the DeSantis administration asked Florida's public colleges and universities to provide them with information on how many programs they have related to DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion, and CRT, critical race theory. They also wanted to know how much the state is funding these programs. Um, has FIU or universities like it here in, the, in, in South Florida provided them with this information? Yeah, they have. They're, they're public institutions, so they, they yeah. have to comply you know, with these public records requests, essentially. Um, so FIU did compile a list of programs, campus offices, uh, different events and initiatives, and also individual courses that are offered that it categorizes as part of DEI initiatives. And that totaled about $3 million, so a fraction of the university's overall budget. Um, and some of the programs, you know, that were identified include efforts to recruit and retain students and faculty of color. Um, also, to my understanding, um, within FIU's Office of Diversity, Equity Inclu and Inclusion, that also includes the Office of Civil Rights Compliance. Uh, so DEI is, excuse me, so Title IX, um, the Americans with Disabilities Act, you know, the university's efforts to comply with, with these federal laws, these federal mandates. Um, so those are some, some critical operations that fall within this umbrella. Diego, how do students, do you think, feel about their their colleges and universities being compelled to provide this kind of information that has really been the most contentious point has been not necessarily even a talk of politics as much as the limitation of politics uh, even though you are seeing people more on the left protesting the actual calls from protesters aren't to have a specific type of politics within colleges but specifically to allow the academic debate rigor and conversation and discourse that colleges are supposed to have. What DeSantis says he wants in colleges is essentially what students are trying to protect. Mm -hmm. But I think we also need to put this in the, more in the South Florida context, though, as opposed to the rest of the state. Um, you know, as I said in the outset here, uh, this may be uh, 
striking a, a more sensitive chord in South Florida than it would say, you know, north of Lake Okeechobee, because diversity is such a sociocultural asset, uh, if not an if not an economic one as well uh, for, for South Florida and particularly South Florida colleges and universities. Um, Diego, let me ask you, how how important would you say that element of diversity is to any student attending a South Florida college or university? It's arguably one of the most important points for the fact that, especially when you're t discussing FIU, FIU is the largest public uh, university in the nation serving minorities, specifically Latino minorities. Mm -hmm. Besides that, we also have a large uh, or knowable African-American population, a large Jewish community as well as you see in the clubs in FIU. So we are a diverse campus. So I think that's the reason why you are seeing Colson and you're seeing FIU at least now mention the fact that it's hard times because they realize diversity is one of their central principles and something that they have to protect right. in these hard times. Kate, does that make then even the administrations, despite the fact that you say, you know, they may, they're, they're trying to be neutral, but does that make them perhaps dig in a little more against plans like DeSantis's because that diversity uh, element is so important in this region of the state? Well, it's definitely a point of pride for the FIU administration, uh, for Dean Colson and, and President Jessel. Uh, President Jessel himself is a first-generation college graduate. Right. Uh, that's one of the populations that FIU really prides itself in supporting and recruiting um, and in helping them graduate and, and get a leg up into the middle class, along with students from immigrant families, students of color, um, that really is a point of pride for the institution is that social mobility and proving to the state and, and to the country as they recruit students that this is a place where anyone can succeed. Let's talk, though, about one of the uh, aspects of this whole thing that Governor DeSantis and his supporters claim buttresses his, his, his point. Um, you know, it, it's obvious that Governor DeSantis has decided that education policy is the way to conservative voters' hearts, um, if not not so conservative voters' hearts as, as well. But one of the points that, that his supporters often make is that programs like DEI and CRT um, require administrative investment that simply balloons the cost of administration on university campuses to the detriment of spending for students. Um, there are studies, for example, uh, the American Council of Trustees and Alumni, uh, they have cited that between 2010 and 2018, non-instructional spending uh, went up a lot more than instructional spending at colleges and universities in this country. And a lot of that had to do, they claim, with programs like DEI. Um, so they're, they're, they're just making the point, or, or making the argument anyway, that programs like DEI are, as I said before, uh, you know, sending administrative costs through the roof to the detriment of what we're spending for students. Um, Kate, do, do you think that argument holds water? I think there's definitely pressure on public universities to, as they say, do more with less, um, and that we are seeing um, as you say, these administrative costs uh, increase. And there is a concern from state officials and from regulators that the mission of, of public universities are getting farther away from the classroom, from core instruction. Um, but I think advocates for these programs would argue that 
um, as the state's population becomes more diverse, um, as they're able to recruit and support more students from diverse backgrounds, that they do need this support, you know, for, for students who uh, no one in their family has gone to college before, or maybe students who are experiencing homelessness while going to school. You had mentioned this particularly stands out in medical uh, programs. Yes, and, and mm-hmm. one of the progr- some of the programs that have been um, targeted as during these public records requests, excuse me, public records requests, um, are programs uh, within medical schools designed to address health disparities in the population. So um, helping medical students correct for racism within healthcare. Mm-hmm. Um, so really having, having an impact beyond the classroom. Diego, let me put that issue to you. As a student, how do students respond, do you think, when they're, when they're uh, confronted with th- this kind of, uh, you know, this kind of data? I mean, when it comes to this data, a lot of them point to the uh, other means. So even if it's costing the administration X amount of money, a lot of them point to the fact that this incentivizes students to come to these schools. The fact that we have these type of programs, especially in FIU, allows for these minorities to have an inclusive space where they don't feel as marginalized and feel that they are represented equitably within a community. And many of them beyond that, as well as faculty, also point to the public funding of universities, specifically how because of Florida's means of funding through full-time students, uh, essentially per the amount of full-time student you receive on campus, it automatically makes it automatically uh, creates an inequitable system where, especially community schools like FIU, schools that tend to be more diverse, end up getting not only less money by the state, but less money per capita considering the local economy of Miami. Mm-hmm. So it's really distracting from the actual issues of public funding universities are dealing with. I'm Tim Padgett. You're listening to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. We're talking about South Florida students protesting Governor DeSantis's plans to block race and diversity programs at colleges. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. You can also tweet us at WLRN. We have a call from Joe. Go ahead. Here in Miami. Hi. I had the benefit of attending an Ivy League school, and I have so much difficulty understanding how a governor as bright as Ron DeSantis who attended the two most woke schools in the country, Harvard and Yale, uh, decides that uh, woke is bad. Uh, As a Marine, I learned to keep my head on a swivel. As an athlete, I learned to be alert, to stay alert, pay attention. Uh, Every childhood organization I belonged to was keep awake, be aware, learn. The opposite of woke to me is ignorance. With regard to the uh, CRT, As a child in the 60s, I recall watching on our small black and white televisions the the demonstrations of black children being beaten, their families being chewed on by canines, hosed down. And I don't ever remember feeling guilty as a white child. I did learn to learn empathy and compassion for others. Uh, The disgust I feel for the governor of the state being as bright as he is and using that intelligence to harm rather than educate is uh, an abysmal. uh, It's abominable. Right. Joe, thank you very much. And and, and I think what he's 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 sort of getting to is the risk Florida and the governor may run uh, in terms of the state's educational and academic reputation. Kate, you and I were talking earlier about how 
the fact that, you know, CRT, critical race theory, may be controversial, but it's also been around as an academic study, a kosher academic study for almost half a century. It's got evidence behind it. If these pro, if this becomes law next month in the, in the Florida legislature, um, how does, does that affect the image of, of, of Florida as an academic locale? And so as I'm talking to students and faculty, that's a critical concern for them is that the reputation of these public institutions could be at risk um, when they what they see as public or excuse me, as political interference um, that's threatening the independence, the academic rigor, the academic integrity. And anecdotally, folks are telling me that already they're hearing from qualified promising applicants to jobs at public universities who are not taking them in Florida because of these concerns. Diego, last word here, just in the last uh, 15 or 20 seconds we have, will, will this maybe dissuade students from coming to study at Florida, I particularly could, South Florida? I could definitely see that, especially considering that we have a top three ranking currently. I don't see how that doesn't change or at least come into question if these legislations pass. All right. Thank you very much, Kate Payne, education reporter for WLRN, Diego Diaz, student journalist at Florida International University. Thank you very much for coming on. Thank, Thank you. you. Coming up, we look at how to deal with a Nicaraguan dictator. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. You can also tweet us at WLRN. I'm Tim Paget. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. This month, Nicaraguan dictator Daniel Ortega released 222 political prisoners. It was a positive gesture, but he still has dozens of other political prisoners behind bars, including Roman Catholic Bishop Rolando Alvarez. And as soon as the 222 prisoners Ortega released were flown to the U.S., he had them stripped of their Nicaraguan citizenship. One of them is former Nicaraguan presidential candidate Felix Maradiaga, who spent 20 months in the infamous El Chipote prison in Managua. He's back in exile in Miami, and this week he told me he doesn't think Ortega intends to relax his brutal dictatorship at all. I think that Ortega is not softening at all. He's radicalizing. North Korea could be an allegory of what Ortega has become. He's sending a clear sign that he's not willing to open a door to democratic transition. So more the United States and international pressures needs to be on the table, indeed. Maradiaga and the rest of the Nicaraguan diaspora here in South Florida, a large diaspora, aren't alone in thinking the U.S. and international community will have to get tougher with Ortega. The question, though, is how to tighten the economic sanction screws without causing inordinate pain for the Nicaraguan people. If you'd like to weigh in on that issue, call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. You can also tweet us at WLRN. My longtime Latin America colleague, Andres Oppenheimer, is a columnist at the Miami Herald and the host of Oppenheimer Presenta on CNN and Espanol. He joins me now. Andres, welcome to the South Florida Roundup. Hi, Tim. Nice talking to you. You too. Your recent Miami Herald column is headlined, How Can the U.S. Condemn Nicaragua's Dictator While Propping Up His Robust Economy? A good question. 
You point out that in the past five years, when the U.S. has been hitting Ortega's regime with sanctions, sales of Nicaraguan goods to the U.S. nonetheless soared 78 percent to a record $5.7 billion last year. And so you observe, quote, no wonder Ortega does not seem to lose sleep over criticism that he is one of the world's worst human rights violators. So, Andres, should we consider sanctions so far a failure? Well, they obviously haven't worked. I mean, you can make the argument, Tim, that sanctions don't work anywhere. But on the other hand, if there's one country where sanctions could possibly work, it's Nicaragua, because Nicaragua depends on the U.S. for about 50%, 5-0, of its exports, and uh, 67% of its uh, remittances, of the money people in Nicaragua get from the relatives in Miami and elsewhere in the U.S. and Europe. So it is very dependent on the U.S. economy. Now, on the other hand, the dilemma for Biden administration officials, and by the way, Tim, this uh, huge increase in exports didn't start with the Biden administration. It started with the Trump administration. Right. It increased even more after the pandemic during the Biden administration. But the question is uh, what to do, as you have said, because uh, U.S. officials fear that if uh, we do something drastic, like, for instance, suspending Nicaragua from the free trade agreement right. with Central America, yeah, we're gonna get it'll to hurt that, yeah. the Nicaraguan people. Mm-hmm. It'll but- hurt the Nicaraguan people badly, and it'll trigger an increase in migration to the U.S., mm-hmm which was already at record levels last year. But given what, you've, so it's, it's a difficult question. given what you've just pointed out, has there been too much focus from, from the Biden administration on blocking U.S. visas, for example, for Nicaraguan officials, and not enough on blocking Nicaraguan business? Well, they, they are thinking about that. They're, they're talking about that with Nicaraguan business people and, 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 and the same people you and I interviewed, the the 222 released political prisoners, uh, and nobody has a clear answer. And yeah. because, again, there are 45,000 workers in Nicaragua's textile industry. Now, let's say we slap tariffs or, or, or we put any kind of obstacles to, to Nicaraguan textile exports to the U.S. You're going to put 45,000 people on the street in a very small country that is already very poor, yeah. And that has a huge migration to the U.S. So what, what I'm saying in that column is that, yes, we should do something more than individual visas. But perhaps the answer is specific targeted measures against industries that are tied to the Ortega family. There are some. And to call them whatever you want, oligarch, uh, crony, Right. Al- yeah. Oligarch is, oligarch is not a bad label in, in, in this context. <laughs> yeah. But I, just for the record, just for record, the record, Andres, I mean, uh, a, a lot of people here and in Washington now say it's time to boot Nicaragua out of CAFTA, the U.S.'s free trade agreement with Central America. But just for the record, as I said, you reject that as a so-called nuclear option, right? Yeah. 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 That's the more I talk with people who know, you know, these trade relations very, you know, very well. First, it's difficult because you cannot just suspend Nicaragua. You would have to suspend the whole CAFTA agreement, the whole yeah. agreement with all Central American countries in the Dominican Republic. 
Mm-hmm. So that's not necessarily in U.S. interest. Well, then let's and second. Uh-huh. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Because of the new, and second, because of that nuclear option you, you, you just mentioned, it would cause a huge, you know, devastation in, 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 in Nicaragua, a social problem that that would revert, you know, in higher levels of migration to the U.S. Right. So let's look then at the sanctions avenues that you propose in in your your column. For example, more more specific, specifically targeted sanctions against industries and business leaders closely tied to Ortega's regime. For example, last year, the Biden administration took a step in that direction when it sanctioned Nicaragua's state-run mining company, Eniminas. Um, Is that the sort of thing you're talking about? Yeah, I don't know whether that, you know, whether that was the right one to, to target, but but that's the sort of thing I'm talking right. about. Uh, let's 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 see which companies are tied to the Ortega family, or which big business people in Nicaragua are effectively helping the regime, and let's target those. Right, and why would that approach? Do you think? perhaps cause less suffering for Nicaraguans than, you know, the, the, the blunter instruments, like, as we were saying before, booting Nicaragua out of CAFTA? Well, uh, perhaps they're smaller in scale. You wouldn't be affecting 45,000. Well, that's only the textile industry. Right. You wouldn't affect almost the entire workforce. You would affect, you know, a smaller number of people, but more, more than that, more importantly, you would sort of drive a wedge between the people who support Ortega in, 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 in the business world and the Ortega family itself. I, I, I think a lot of I think a lot of people think what you're saying, Andres, makes a lot of sense. But that be, then begs the question: Why has the Biden administration been so slow to to take this approach? Well, they haven't been slow. Actually, they have imposed they have slapped more sanctions, individual sanctions, on Nicaragua than, than the Trump administration. But the the, the, the problem is again. Every time you single out one company, uh, first you have to make sure that it's really tied to the Ortega family. You know these people don't put their names on the paper. Right. They, you know they hide them behind several shady corporations. And number two, you have to make sure that the damage is worth, you know, worth its while. You, you don't want to leave tens of thousands of people on the street. Right. At a time when the Biden administration is concerned about Republican charges of uh, a free border and all those issues, that uh, you know that there would be an increase in Nicaraguan migrants to the U.S., mm-hmm. they are clearly afraid of that as we come, you know, closer to the 2024 election. Right. Yeah, and I, I didn't mean to say that the, the Biden administration has been slow on this. I, I, what I meant to say was, why, what perhaps why aren't they doing more? I'm Tim Padgett. You're listening to the South Florida Roundup. I'm talking with Miami Herald columnist Andres Oppenheimer about Nicaragua and what to do about the Ortega dictatorship. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. You can also tweet us at WLRN. Andres, what about the Nicaraguan military, which, which keeps Ortega in power? I'm told it has vast assets stored away overseas. Can we go after that the way we've gone after the Venezuelan dictatorship's wealth abroad, for example? Yes, and I think there are some measures to that effect. But again, the problem is doing it alone, because we impose visa sanctions on top officials of the Ortega regime. But, you know, guess what? 
Instead of going to Disney World, they're going to Madrid or to Paris. <laughs> right. So, yeah. so you know, I think uh, we should work closer. Here we have a big opportunity, Tim, because unlike with the case of Cuba and Venezuela, another two big-time dictatorships, yep. this one does not have the support of Latin America. If you look at what happened this week, Mexico, Argentina, Chile, several left-of-center governments offered asylum to the to some or all of the 222 political prisoners who were released. Yeah. So, and Ortega is being condemned by these governments. So I think the solution of what the Biden administration should do, and I'm sure they're thinking about it, is in this case, you can create a coalition of countries to together put pressure on Nicaragua to have free and fair elections. Andres, finally, you and I have both interviewed Ortega. I, I think we'd both agree he's not a particularly bright or charismatic individual. How in the world has he amassed such absolute power? Uh, I would say, like many other places, having a solid, uh, very you know, hardcore uh, group of people who follow. In other words, in this is an age you don't need 50 percent plus one of the population to support you. Yeah. If you have, and we have seen this in this country too, if you have 25 percent of the population who are hardcore followers, that alone, yeah. and, and, and if you manage to split into the opposition, as happened in Caragua, mm-hmm. where opposition leaders have fought among themselves, and you have, yeah. you know, 10 opposition candidates running at the same time. You speak to the opposition, and you win. That's the way Ortega has done it. In addition to yeah. censoring the media, expelling mm-hmm. uh, people, uh, etc. Cetera, et cetera. Well, thanks, Andres. Andres Oppenheimer is my is the Miami Herald's Latin America columnist and also the host of Oppenheimer Presenta on CNN and Español. Andres, thanks very much. Thank you, Tim. Thanks. That will do it for the South Florida Roundup. It's produced by Natu Twe. Our engagement editor is Katie Cohen. Katie Munoz is our director of original live programming. Our director of enterprise journalism is Jessica Bakeman. Mateo Sanchez is digital editor. Sergio Bustos is WLRN's vice president of news. The vice president of radio and show's technical supervisor is Peter J. Maers. Richard Ives, answer the phones. I'm Tim Padgett. Thanks for joining us. Gracias. Messi. Obrigado. WLRN Public Media